I'm open to anything. I will, I'll talk to anybody. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not afraid of any topic when it comes to ranching necessarily. And so I'm always open just to an interesting conversation that challenges my paradigms, challenges somebody else's paradigms. I'm Brian Mose, a farmer living in Florence, South Dakota, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we sit down with Clay Connery. If you don't know Clay, he runs one of the most popular cattle podcasts in the entire country called Working Cows. He's a pastor and he raises sheep in South Dakota. This is an interesting character, and we had a chance to sit down and talk all about what do you talk about week after week on a cattle podcast? What does a pastor actually do? Why do people trust you? And I learned a lot about sheep that I knew nothing about. My sense is that this is one of those podcasts that you're going to say, I don't know, should I give this a shot? And you'll get all the way through it and you'll realize you had a very interesting conversation with a guy that's humble, has many good ideas, and is really extraordinary at explaining what goes on in the world of cattle ranchers' minds. So we're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, a couple of announcements. On February 8th and 9th, Legacy Interviews is headed to Monticello, Indiana, where we'll be recording local Legacy Interviews. If you've had a loved one that you thought would be perfect and you really want to capture their life stories so that future generations can know their family history, but thought the drive to St. Louis might be a bit much, then consider signing up for one of six slots that we have available. We had a listener generously offer us an opportunity to use their bin dominium, that's a grain bin turned into a condo, and we've decided to open up some slots for people in Northwest Indiana to get one of these legacy interviews. So if you're interested, go to legacyinterviews.com slash Indiana to sign up. We only have six slots available, so go now. Another big announcement that I wanna make is a few weeks ago, I aired the talk that I gave at the Colorado Farm Bureau called The Art of Picking Up Nails. That talk is about communications, how to help people open up so that you can have deeper conversations that might lead to conversations about succession planning or changes that are coming, the sort of opening up that builds relationships. I had some groups reach out to me and ask, would I be willing to come give that talk at their organization? And the answer is, of course, yes. I'm very interested in booking out talks in the late spring and early summer. And if that particular talk didn't fit you, you can go to vancecrow.com to find out more talks that we're delivering these days. Right now we have a talk on strategy and thinking about new technologies that are coming down the line. I have another talk about negotiations and how to make sure that you can get what you need and make sure that other people are happy. Or for your group, we could always develop a new talk that matches your organization precisely. If you're interested in having me come speak to your group, go to vancecrow.com to find out more. All right, without further ado, let's head to the interview with Clay Connery. Clay Connery, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Vance. Appreciate it. Man, I have been on a lot of people's podcasts, but never before have I been on somebody's podcast and I had so many people write me, call me, text me. It was unbelievable. So let's start off there talking about your podcast. Who is listening to you and how'd you get this thing started? I guess about six years ago now, just a little over six years ago now, um, my wife and I embarked on a journey of taking some continuing education courses and kind of the 30,000 foot view of that is I grew up on a, on a ranch. My parents are, I always say my parents are heroes. 
they started their ranch from nothing in the 80s <laughs> and uh, just both of them hustled jobs in town to get it going and were able to retire early by some metrics to the ranch and then just just enjoy some time uh, doing what they loved after they worked their jobs in town and so I grew up where my parents were like I said, hustling jobs in town and, and every night and every weekend pretty much was the ranch for us. And so I kind of resented the ranch, didn't really like it, uh, didn't enjoy it. And so I went away, lived in Milwaukee for two years, went to Bible school. Um, and I kind of remember coming home from Bible school one time, and maybe it was just the funk of a of the inside of a 19-year-old boy's car and a 13-hour drive. But I got out in western South Dakota and I smelled the air and I'm like, the air is fresh here this is nice. I kind of do enjoy that. And I always say that's kind of the seed, I think, that really planted uh, this connection to Western South Dakota and the agricultural lifestyle that goes along with it. So continue fast forward a little bit. I spent 12 years as a youth and associate pastor uh, in the the church where I was saved, where I became a Christian. uh, And I, that that stream of income, so to speak, was starting to go down and my dad was starting to need more help on the ranch. So he offered me a part-time job working on the ranch. And in the course of that, um, he said, you know, you should really go get some continuing education related to ranching uh, so that we can have some more intelligent conversations. And I'm not just telling you, put that staple there, you know, haul those cows there. We can kind of start to make some plans and decisions together. And I go to this continuing education course called the High Plains Ranch Practicum. Uh, I don't think it exists in the same format anymore, uh, but it was put on by Blake Hopman, uh, Dallas Mount, and Aaron Berger. Dallas Mount, uh, and all of three of them were extension agents. Blake and Dallas were with University of Wyoming, and Aaron was with the University of Nebraska, and they cooperated together to put on this High Plains Ranch Practicum. And Dallas made the statement a couple of times in the course of that class. He said, you know, somebody in this room should start a podcast for ranchers. Well, I was a podcast addict already at that point, had been listening for a couple of years to a number of different podcasts on a weekly basis or daily, depending on the frequency of their release schedule. And, you know, I I had an understanding of the recording equipment through my job at the church and recording sermons. I had an understanding of websites also through the job at the church. So I had the technical side down. I had the love for podcasting down. And I'd heard podcasters always saying, you should start a podcast. Everybody always says, you know, you should start a podcast. And uh, which I think is something unique that separates radio from podcasting. But that's another conversation. (laughs) Uh, And so Um, you know, he said, you should start a podcast. I'm like, well, I grew up on a ranch. I know the technical side. I can ask a reasonably intelligent question about cows. And the way that they were presenting ranching was unlike anything I'd ever heard before about, uh, high, high intensity rotational grazing and some of these things. And more, more than that, just looking at ranching as a business rather than a lifestyle, because I think sometimes we supplement poor performing businesses or we, 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 uh, subsidize poor performing businesses by telling ourselves it's a lifestyle. And so it was really opening up a whole different way of looking at ranching, a new paradigm, so to speak. And so I started to think about, okay, maybe I can do this. And so I started the podcast in November of 2017 uh, and started releasing just about an episode a week. Uh, For the last six years, I've averaged more than an episode a week. 
Uh, this year, I released about 65 episodes, I think, as I partnered with some different organizations to release some branded content for them. So, yeah, it just has continued to grow. And I think, you know, um, first of all, all glory to God for the the success of the podcast. Honestly, I always say it's proof that he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Um, but I also uh, think that some some of that has to do with timing. Like you get you get to market first. I was one of the first agricultural podcasts, and by no means the first. There were other people doing it before me, but I was pretty early as far as agricultural podcasts can, are concerned. And I think. Uh, that helps a lot. <laughs> and so, uh, and then to the guests, you know, the guests uh, have been a great part of that, you know, just leveraging the network of the guests and saying, you know, who do you think that I should be talking to? Who's the next guy I should answer? Uh, or they'll just mention names in passing and you take down the notes, you write down the notes and you, you uh, reach out to those people and they mention other people and it's just continued to grow in that way. And it's an awesome community. I see people from all over the country and all over the world making connections through the podcast. And uh, it's just been a real fun journey and a real blessing to my family. And it's just been a huge, uh, my wife has been a huge support through this whole thing of uh, letting me hide out in the closet when I t need to and record an intro or record a whole episode or whatever it takes to get decent uh, acoustics in a room to, uh, to make a, to make a recording. So. And when you have working cows as the title of your thing, does this mean you are um, pr putting out there ranching information that people already know? This is like the normal way to do it? Or are you doing something on the edge? The tagline I, has been, you know, providing producers a platform to discuss and share paradigm challenging practices. And so basically the goal is to produce something that is out of the box. And one, one good uh, example of that is two episodes back to back. Uh, I talked to a guy in Chapel, Nebraska, who runs a feedlot. And we talked about the changes in the feedlot business over the last, you know, 30, 40 years since he's been involved in it. And some of the ways that they are trying to set themselves apart in that business to uh, eke out a better margin and, and some of those things. And then the very next episode was with a guy from Minnesota who says, I, who said, I haven't, he's a veterinarian, uh, you know, and he said, I have not held or uh, sold vaccine in 21 years. And he said, it's just been all grass finishing, uh, no, no confinement, all on pasture. And I haven't held or sold vaccine in 21 years. So just, and, and there were people <laughs> after the release of both of those episodes that were upset, like, how can you be talking to the feedlot guy? And then there's other guys who are like, well, how can he not vaccinate cattle? Does he hate his cows? Are they all going to die? You know? And so it's, I'm, I'm, you challenge somebody's paradigm with every episode. And so it, it's kind of broad. I'm open to anything. I will, I'll talk to anybody. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not afraid of any topic when it comes to ranching necessarily. And so I'm al always open just to an interesting conversation that challenges my paradigms, challenges somebody else's paradigms, uh, because I think that uh, I heard it said one time, if you read one author, you're a clone. If you read two authors, you're confused. If you read a thousand authors, you can become wise. And so I think that if we, we will uh, broaden our perspectives and our horizons, we can become better managers. And if we approach it with an open mind, we can learn something from everybody. Everybody has something that they can teach us if we're willing to approach it with humility. 
Yeah, and as the person on the that's running the podcast, it's amazing to me when people will be like, I can't believe you let that person talk or I can't believe you let that person say that thing. And uh, and you realize like the concepts that go behind something like free speech are are deeply foreign to the human social animal. It might be really something that the that the individual understands, but the social animal definitely has this desire to say, hey, those are things you shouldn't say, or, or I believe that they're so wrong that we should try and push those ideas out. It's It's been fascinating to me to, to, to see this. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, the, the, the idea of free speech is that even if I don't agree with what you say, I will defend your right to say it, right? I think that's when you, when you really understand uh, free speech, you come to that conclusion. You know, and I think that as long as free speech isn't harming somebody else, that, you know, that there are there's a pretty broad spectrum of things that people uh, ought to be allowed to say in the public space. And when you think of some of these paradigm changing uh, interviews that you've had, which have been the ones that have caused you to actually make a change in your life? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, some of the ones like uh, we talk about running sheep and sheep have fallen out of favor. But you talk to most people uh, like in my parents generation and older uh, sheep were a big part of what really paid for a lot of land in the West. And honestly, I think it's because they're a they're an animal better suited to the West. Uh, first of all, they're very susceptible to parasite parasites. So when we have them in eastern contexts where the parasite load is higher they are uh, they struggle in those contexts and so in the west the parasite load is lower right there are smaller animals so they don't take as much input for uh to stay alive right you think about a 250 pound ewe versus a 13 14 1500 pound cow uh the ratio stays the same right three percent of body weight for dry in dry matter intake right so they're gonna they need less food and it just so happens that in the West, we have less food available. <laughs> you know, I grew up in uh, Western South Dakota, 15 inches of rain a year. The next step below that is semi-arid. And then the next one below that is a desert. And so, you know, we're, we're just a couple of steps up from being a desert in Western South Dakota. And so we should start to look at, well, what animals thrive in deserts in other places? Yeah, uh, you get to wear a bigger, bigger belt buckle to the coffee shop if you run big black cows. But uh, what animals thrive in a desert? Sheep. And so maybe we should think about incorporating sheep into some of these operations, even if they don't carry as much swagger at the coffee shop. <laughs> Is there a place to harvest sheep around where you're at? I would imagine that'd be one of the biggest challenges. Right. Yeah. So uh, there's one of the largest uh, sheep sale barns. Uh, I know it's at different points, it's been one of the largest ones in the world. More head of sheep have run through there than anywhere else is just 35 miles from my house. And so um, this again, this place, this this whole area was really built on sh on the back of the sheep. People call them the mortgage lifters. Uh, so they they really did help a lot of people get by and survive. Uh, but they're they're a different animal. I heard somebody say recently, um, you uh, you can run cows uh, because you get that social capital, but you cannot run sheep unless you love sheep because they will frustrate you. They will do things that you don't want them to do. They'll get out. They'll test your fences. They'll 
all kinds of things, right? And they're just a totally different animal when it comes to how you approach them from a stockmanship perspective, how you work them, how you get them to move through a gate. They're just totally different than, than a cow. And so it, it does take a special set of skills to do it well, uh, skills that we are still trying to acquire at my house. Uh, but it is, it is a, a totally different uh, scenario. And so I think that um, we do have that infrastructure here. We have people who know how to shear sheep. We run wool sheep. So they, they have a fleece that they produce every year. Uh, and we have people who know how to shear them. And we have a sale barn big enough that multiple semi loads of sheep will leave there every week, whether it's slaughter ewes or lambs or some combination of the two. Multiple semi loads go out of there every week of the year. And so uh, it's big enough to keep trucks coming and those trucks can drive straight to a feedlot facility or a facility that is going to harvest them, you know, so it's, it, that's not a problem. So I wasn't expecting you to say you run uh sheep for wool. Like uh, to me that what I've heard is that the wool is like, you know, you're just shearing it off them to keep them going, but you guys are actually capturing that and selling it somewhere. Yep. Again, um, one of the largest sheep wear, wool warehouses in the world, again, is, is 70 miles from a house in Belfouche, South Dakota. And so, um, again, uh, Australia and New Zealand, I'm not sure how they play into that. I know Australia produces a way finer wool than we do in America. Uh, I think it has something to do with the arid climate that helps them in that regard. Um, but uh, it is a very we can we can make it work it's worth us it's worth it for us i know a lot of people in the east i've even got emails from people because i've talked about sheep quite a bit on the working cows podcast i've talked about sheep quite a bit um and i've gotten emails from people in missouri and said i i just burn my wool <laughs> that's all we do with it like you said we just we we shear it off and we use it to start a fire somewhere uh because we, we can't get rid of it here um but i mean again there's there's a wool warehouse that i don't know how many i think I've heard it said that this guy at the wool warehouse will put together like kinds of wool that are similar as far as micron, which is the, the width of the individual fibers. He puts together like kinds of wool and he sells them by the like the container ship load uh, out of that wool warehouse. So there's a lot of wool that goes through that warehouse in a given year. And so, again, it's an advantage for us. It's a regional advantage for us, which I think is part of the key to success in agriculture in these days is taking advantage of those regional advantages that you have. We have unfair advantages here uh, and we should try to take advantage of them so that we can succeed in, in agriculture financially, not just uh, relationally. <laughs> and what is the profit model look like on sheep? Uh, you know, it's better. It's just like anything else. It's a, it's a market. Uh, it's just like anything else. It, it's better at sometimes um, than others. Uh, three and four years ago, it was incredibly good. Uh, and that was partly due to the fact that they had a major freeze during lambing season in Texas. If you remember that kind of freak below zero sustained, sustained spell uh, that came right during lambing season in Texas and really set them back for a couple of years. And uh, about the time that Texas got ramped back up with sheep production, our market fell out of bed. And so uh, then it was down for about a year and now it's bounced back, it's pretty decent. And I think a lot of what's driving uh, the better sheep markets of late is uh, more uh, more ethnic populations in America that are, that are consumers of lamb, right? And so we don't, by and large, uh, my family doesn't eat much. We've eaten some, not of our own, but from our neighbors who, 
invited us over to uh, go through the process of of uh, butchering their their lambs and and they sent us home with a little bit uh, that day and and we enjoyed it. I mean, it's good eating, good eating critter, but uh, just not something we grew up with. So it's not something that we're familiar with or accustomed to. And so um, a lot of our lamb leaves and goes somewhere else and gets used up. But I think that there has been the growth of that population in America so that less of our our lamb has to get exported than probably it did before. Well, you mentioned that you have uh, regional advantages, like the ability to have sheep up where you're at and make it profitable, but you're also in the most bitterly cold place <laughs> that I would imagine makes it difficult to run cattle, um, you know, basically from October on through March, April. I know Brian Mose sends me these photographs of, of his frozen beard, and it's just un, unreal what he, he goes through. In fact, a quick story about Brian Mose. Um, I'm in a group of people we sometimes do... Uh, little experiments for like a month. And we decided <laughs> a couple of years ago, I think it was November that we were going to do cold showers that you couldn't use hot water, not realizing that Brian was going to be like, you know, like 20 degrees colder than everybody else. So you just had to crank that shower all the way over to the coldest setting. Yeah. And Ooh. he was, he was trying to do it too. But so that, you know, that brings up, you're both in South Dakota you know, you're trying to raise cattle where you got to go out and calve in the middle of the night. Cold has got to be a serious disadvantage to you. Yep. Again, and but I think that, again, that's another paradigm challenging practice, right? So uh, that's part of what really the ethos of the Working Cows podcast is, is we're putting cows to work for us. Rather than us work for the cows, why don't we make them work for us? And so I think that, uh, you know, Brian, I've toured his operation. It's incredible. They, they, uh, were a candidate for the NCBA's uh, stewardship award. They won their region, which I think is district five or seven. I can't remember which, but they won their region and they went to the NCBA conference and they were up. I don't know how many of those districts there are, seven or eight of those districts. And they were one of the seven or eight in the nation that was up for that award. Um, and so, I mean, they're doing an amazing job. They are doing an incredible job of capturing manure from their feedlot, reapplying it to their feeds, um, helping defray the costs of, of more than one salary on their operation. You know, they're doing and they've got an incredible facility that makes calving in February when they do calve a lot easier. And they're also very busy in the field in May when it's a lot less of a burden to calve as far as from a temperature perspective. So uh, all that to say that one of the paradigm challenging practices that we talk a lot about is calving in sync with nature, or as I like to say it, calving in sync with what God provides, right? So the, the, the world, the, our region goes through a, a shift from high availability of forage to low availability of forage. The, the, bottom of the trough as far as forage availability is February, right? The top of the trough as far as forage availability is May and June. And so when does the cow have her greatest nutrient requirements? The last trimester of pregnancy and the first trim or the first quarter after uh, birth when that calf is depending on her completely for all of its nutrients from her milk supply. And so her nutrient requirement is ramping up right when our forage availability is at the lowest if we're 
if we're doing it in February. Now, like I said, Brian's got a great setup. They've got a huge feed pile that they can use because they harvest it from their corn and, and, and all those things. You know, they make it into silage. Works really well for them. They've got the facilities to do it. Uh, so, and they're doing a great job of it. But for somebody who's just trying to get start out, there's a lot of capital that goes into starting with that. You got to build a barn. Sometimes you put a heated floor in that barn. You've got to have the tractors to uh, to plant the corn, the tractors to uh, you know all all of the equipment to to fertilize the corn, harvest the corn, uh, put the corn in the silage pile, pack it, all of that. You know that's all. Th those are dollars that you need to start if you're going to start in that kind of a of a mode. And so maybe there's another way to start. Um, and that could be calving in May and June when the forage supply is at its peak, right when the cow's nutrient requirements are at their peak. And so that's one of the things that we talk about on the Working Cows podcast is matching our our uh, our businesses, our business models to what nature provides uh, as far as those things are required. So uh, in a lot of places, they end up feeding cattle uh, six months out of the year or more, right? And 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 here's the thing that blows a lot of people's minds: uh, that number really doesn't change that much from Canada to Texas. Uh, in Canada, they feed just as much as they do in Texas, and they do it for different reasons, right? In in the Gulf Coast of Texas, they don't really grow what we would call grass here. They grow what we would call tall water, right? There's not much to that grass. It's very what we call washy. It's just a lot of high water content. There's not much protein, not much nutrients in that grass. And so they, it, and it goes really downhill when it goes dormant. And so they have to feed, not because there isn't grass there, but because the grass that is there is so low quality that they have to supplement that cow through her low nutrient requirement or through her high nutrient requirement phases of her year. And so, um, but we could maybe change the way, change when we calve so that we can match that cow's nutrient requirements to the forage availability of our landscapes and save ourselves some money, reduce the startup costs and some of those things. I always wondered why why is it that that um, ranchers are often calving in February? I mean, it seems like the worst time to be doing it, but they must have had a good reason to be doing it. Yeah, so I think that that goes to a couple of things. One one of them is a cultural thing, and the other one is uh, about just the cycle of the year, right? If you get that calf on the ground in February, uh, you can wean a pretty good sized calf by by October. And you've got all of your production in one year, basically, right? And so it makes it a little cleaner, a little easier. But I think also there's a cultural thing that goes to that because we haven't always been uh, calving at the same time. I think this goes to something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is what I call the eternality of the present. We think that just because it's happening this way right now, it's always been happening this way. And we can't, we don't remember or we don't realize how recently people were doing it differently than we're doing it right now. And so I, I think that um, it's easy for us to think that people have always been calving in February. They haven't. It's it's not that old that people, it's not that, that long ago that people started calving. And really it, it has a lot to do with the mechanization of of ranching right we we didn't have tractors 150 years ago you know uh, a lot of those things or maybe or maybe you know 
we can quibble on. A lot days. of people didn't have tractors in the 1930s, right? right? Like right. it's not that long ago. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so the, the mechanization of agriculture has opened up those opportunities that probably didn't exist. Um, so a good way to measure this is look at, look at the wildlife in your area. When are they calving? When, or when are they, you know, having their young? When are the deer having their fawns? When are the elk having their calves? You know, look at the wildlife in your area, especially the ruminants and the ungulates. Look at them and say, when are they doing their thing? And then think, I bet there's a reason they're doing their thing then. And maybe think about matching your, your production schedule up to it. So the cultural thing, though, that I was talking about is I, there has been what, what some people have called the space race in uh, livestock agriculture, especially mostly affecting uh, cattle. And that is bigger, faster, basically is what it is. They wanted to get the biggest animal possible in the shortest amount of time possible. Well, that animal that can do that is going to be highly dependent on supplementation. There are breeds of cattle, there are sizes of cattle, there are even shapes of cattle that do a lot better on less supplementation, even no supplementation, even in difficult environments like Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota. Uh, but if you if you go after that heavier weaning weight and that weaning a calf and selling a calf in October when everybody else is selling a calf, it's going to take a different animal and it's going to take some, some supplementation to do it. And so those are kind of some of the reasons why it ends up working out the way it does. When do you guys calf? <laughs> so I run the Working Cows podcast. I don't own cows. I own sheep. And I bring in other people's cows to my place during the growing season. That's how we approach it. I, I shouldn't say I don't own cows. I own two cows. They're milk cows. <laughs> and uh, they will they will probably calve uh, around, around May or after. Um, one of them, the neighbor's bull got in, so she might calve a little earlier. But uh, that, that, that happens. <laughs> so. Yeah, the reality of nature. So you have milking cows. Does that mean you're out there every morning and every afternoon milking them? Uh, right now, our, our milk cow is raising a calf that will end up in our freezer next fall. And so she doesn't require much milking at this moment. And then the other one is a first calf heifer. She hasn't had her first calf yet. And so when she does calve, we will start milking her. So we're not currently milking anything. Um we're kind of like old McDonald's farm. Uh, the ranch for us is a, is a side hustle. Okay, so the ranch is a side hustle for us. Um, it, it has supplemented our income uh, and helped us just have a little bit higher standard of living, be able to be a little more generous and give away a little bit more money than, than we would otherwise. And so uh, it, it isn't our sole source of income. So like I said, we've got goats. We've milked to those at different times. And I actually prefer goat milk to cow's milk. Uh, if you don't have a buck around, if you've got a buck around, it, it tastes like the buck smells. If you know what a, what a male goat smells like, not pleasant. But if you don't have a buck around, in my experience, it tastes a lot better and it's really good. Uh, I actually heard one guy say one time, just think about the size of the animal that's that they're attempting to raise with uh when with it, with the milk that they're producing a cow is trying to produce a 1300 pound animal well a goat's trying to produce a 200 pound animal so maybe we should drink milk from animals that are a little closer in size to what we are 
that was an interesting perspective i thought and i do prefer yeah i never heard that before yeah and they're and they're easier to keep around right they're they're well other than keeping them in you basically have to build a swimming pool to keep a goat in but uh it's uh it's they're easier from that same same idea right they're smaller animal they they take less feed to keep alive and honestly a milk cow will probably produce more milk than one family can drink uh, and so you end up with a lot of milk that either goes to waste, gets fed to the chickens, gets fed to the dogs, gets, you know, and, and there's other things you can do to it. You do with it. You can turn it into cheese. You can do butter, you know, whatever. So you don't have to drink every gallon that comes through there. But it's it's uh, a little just a different perspective. Another thing about goats is a lot of people have milk allergies um, and there's a beta casein protein in milk. There's A1 and A2 milk, right? There's, and then there's, they get, uh, I think they get half from each side. And so you can have A1, A2, A1, A1, or A2, A2 milk, right? A2, A2 milk is very digestible for most people. And all goats that I'm aware of, all milk goats that I'm aware of are A2, A2. They produce A2, A2 milk. So most people can drink it, uh, even if they're allergic to goat's milk or cow's milk. So uh, another, another, uh, vote in favor of cows so yeah we're we're like old mcdonald's farm we got the big guardian dog out in the front guarding our chickens uh, we've got goats sheep cows horses uh and so uh we we try to protect our grass and keep it for uh spring use when we bring in somebody else's cattle for about 90 days a year and then we keep the sheep and the goats and the cow and the milk cows and the horses around year round you know, this is the second time you've mentioned grass, which is something that most people don't think about at all. But, you know, if you're working cows, that makes a big difference or sheep or goats. What do you know about grass now that you've been uh, doing this podcast for a while? It's the Dunning-Kruger effect for sure, right? The more I learn about grass, the less I know about grass. <laughs> so uh, the, it's a, it's the foundation of our business, right? It is what we get free energy from the sun, right? It, the only free thing in the world is energy from the sun right and so what we're trying to do is create a better solar panel with our grass to capture more of that free energy from the sun so that we have to do less supplementation of the animals that do live on our place for uh year round and so grass is the most important thing uh bud williams was a great thinker in agriculture uh, he passed away here uh, 10 years ago, maybe a little less than that. Uh, but he was a great thinker in agriculture, had a lot to say about how we handle cattle and reducing stress in the livestock that we're handling. Uh, but he also had a lot of good things to say just about how we conduct business as uh, ranchers, as uh, agriculturalists, as farmers. And one of the things that he's famous for saying is that you need to come to a point where you love your grass and you hate your cows not hate your cows from a perspective of abusing them or anything like that, but that you're willing to sell cows to protect grass. He And he would say it this way. Um, there's been a lot of people who have gone broke by having too many cows around. Nobody in ranching has ever gone broke by having too much grass and too much money. But if you, you can, you can get to a point where you have too many cows, not enough grass, not enough money, and then it's easy to go broke that way. And so grass is the foundation of everything we do. And more importantly than that, the underground soil microbes that really uh, are the engine for the production of grass in our world. That's really what grass is about. 
is about making a good house for underground soil microbes to thrive. And they do a lot of the work that really makes grass grow, actually. And so if you know that about, you know, needing to tend to the grass, what are you guys doing that's different than just letting it grow? Yeah. So I think that um, the 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 high end of the spectrum of grass management is something that has come to be called ultra high density grazing. And we're talking about like a thousand animals on one acre of grass, uh, which is uh, what about a football field is an acre just to if somebody needs to figure out how big an acre is, it's about the size of a football field. Um, so a thousand animals on that amount of grass for a very, very short period of time. And the most of the guys that I know that are ultra high density grazing are moving four times per day, right? So they're moving cows four different times in a day, and then they're on to another place and they're moving them four different times in a day. And so uh, they give them four football fields a day, let's say with a thousand cows and they go to the next set of four football fields a day and they do that again and they do that every day all day every year now the problem for us in here's an here's an uh, a disadvantage a regional disadvantage we talked about unfair advantages earlier here's a disadvantage is labor right i can't pay myself or anyone else to move cows four times a day in my neighborhood or let me say it this way can't is a strong word let me say it this way. Uh, it, I haven't figured out how to pay myself or anyone else in my neighborhood to come and move cows four times a day for me. I know a lot of people um, in in Mexico who do it. And I talked to one of them and I said, how does that work? How does moving cows four times a day work? He said, well, I give my guy that works for me a four wheeler and an umbrella. And he goes out and he sits there and he watches the cow cows and as soon as one of them lays down he knows it's time to move them and he moves them to the next paddock and they go back to eating as soon as another one goes to lay down he moves them to the next one and but could you could could we do that in american agriculture it'd be a tough sell i'll just say it that way it'd be a tough sell and if you could do it if you would could find somebody especially in western south dakota where it gets pretty hot over 100 degrees for a week at a time generally at least once a summer uh if you could find somebody that was willing to do it, could you afford to pay them to do it? It, it gets kind of tough. The, the margins get kind of tight on that. So uh, can't, like I said, strong word. I would prefer not to use it, uh, but it is. It, so that's the high end of the spectrum. That's like the ultimate. That's the best. But what. And let's talk about why. Let's talk about why that is. Right. I, I get that they're standing there. They're stomping up and mm -hmm. down. They're, they're biting, they're mm -hmm. peeing, they're mm -hmm. throwing their manure. Mm -hmm. But why such a fast time with so many animals as opposed to yep. less animals with a little bit more time? Yeah, great question. So I think that the, the deal there is we are increasing stock density, all the things you talked about, manure, urine distribution, uh, hoof action, um, saliva comes into it. They, people say they eat with, with uh, six mouths. They have four feet one mouth and they lay on stuff. And so what we're trying to do there is get plant matter pushed down on top of the soil because those underground soil microbes, we need to provide them with a house and that house needs to have a roof. That's like the most important thing that that house needs is a roof and it needs to be covered by plant material so that when rain hits it, it it slows down. It doesn't cap the soil. When rain hits bare soil, it caps it and then it runs off, right? 
the number one export in American agriculture every single year is topsoil. Wind and water erosion export more topsoil than all of the other commodities that American agriculture uh, exports. And so that's what we're trying to stop. We're trying to stop that, trying to slow it down, trying to reverse it, trying to build soil rather than lose it. And so um, the all those things we talked, you talked about are right on, but the, the missing piece is recovery period. The amount of time that the cows aren't there is actually more important than the amount of time that they are there. The amount of time that that grass has to recover, regrow, uh, come back, totally uh, re regenerate itself is more important than how long they were actually there. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to maximize the amount of, we're trying to maximize the density of the herd when they are there but then we're trying to also at the same time maximize the amount of time that we're not there so that 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 piece of land has enough time to come back and get back to full uh senescence and and really express itself uh, ecologically speaking so yeah that's that's why that's important and then the opposite of ultra high density grazing has to be just open pastures go go where you want yep yep uh we call it set stocking um where uh, or some people to be cute, uh, or to maybe settle in people's minds a little bit better, have called it uh, Christopher Columbus ranching. We just turn them out in the spring, and then we go and discover them in the fall. <laughs> we never never look at them. We just go discover them in the fall, see what we've got left, and round them up. So uh, yeah, I think it's 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 called set stocking. It's just however many acres it's going to take to feed this number of cows for the year. We're going to turn them out on that and. We're, we'll come back and get them later. Nobody really does that in my neighborhood. I mean, um, it's it's pretty rare that that's done. Most people have some form of a pasture rotation, and they're cer certainly checking on them. They're certainly checking on their herd health. Certainly checking on, uh, you know, illnesses or any other issues that they might be finding, and and taking care of them. You know, uh, people take excellent care of their cattle um, and nothing really illustrates that better than a tragedy that we had 10 years ago this year in my neighborhood called the atlas blizzard which killed thousands of cattle in in our neighborhood um, came in october october 4th and 5th of 2013 um, four feet of snow after two inches of rain 70 mile an hour winds and just devastated this part of the world and there were a lot of broken ranchers and Part of what I like to do on the Working Cows podcast is document history. And so I I asked uh, a few different people. My The church that I pastor is like the epicenter of that blizzard. Like 100 miles in every direction was affected pretty pretty heavily by that blizzard. Um, and so I, I asked uh, some of my the members of my congregation, I asked some of my neighbors if they would be willing to talk to it almost every single one of them 10 years later still turned me down, you know, and you're thinking big, tough ranchers. Nope. Don't want to talk about it. Can't do it yet. Still too fresh, still too much of a tragedy. Let me illustrate how bad that blizzard was. I was talking to one of my, uh, one of my congregants one time, one of my neighbors, and I asked him um, how he came through the Atlas blizzard. And he said, you know, we were pretty blessed. We only lost 25% of our herd. One storm, 25% of your herd and you call yourself blessed compared to your neighbors. I mean, that's the level of devastation we're talking about here. So 
maybe you, Vance, as an outsider with your legacy interviews, could come and capture some of that history sometime, uh, uh, because I, I think it needs to be told. That story needs to be told. But again, it's it's still too fresh. Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, like the storms really are something that is universal across people. You mentioned that Texas ice storm. I've interviewed several people from Texas and that being like a relatively recent thing. But you look at the whole, you know, distance of somebody's life, they look back on it and they're like, we had to do these crazy things I never thought we were going to have to do in order to survive. And, and uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways we believe that we're past those things. But when you get hit by Mother Nature, a tornado, a blizzard, a, a heat storm, it makes you realize like, oh, this is just the illusion of control. There's, <laughs> I don't actually have control here at all. Yeah. Nature is undefeated, right? <laughs> Yeah, over the long haul. So um, you've mentioned a couple of times that you're a pastor. My uh, my immediate reaction, if I'm being very candid with you, is anytime somebody mentions that they're a pastor or a minister or a priest, like I take one step back. That's like uh, that because it's somebody saying like I have some way to interpret the word of God for other people, and and it and it. Uh, so to me, somebody that takes on that mantle has has. Uh, is in a big position. Tell me about your path to, to get to being a pastor and uh, yeah, how, how you feel about somebody saying, I take a step back when I hear somebody say they're a pastor. Yeah. Um, I do too, honestly, uh, because it is a huge responsibility. And every time I step behind that pulpit, I do so in fear and trembling. Like if I, if I mishandle this word of God, I am liable you know, I mean, the book of Revelation says, if anyone adds to or takes away from this word, uh, let all the plagues of this book be added unto them. You know, so like it's a big responsibility and it has been perverted. Uh, you know, no doubt it's been perverted. It's been used by people for their own benefit uh, to to line their own pockets throughout history. And so, yeah, there's a there is a lot of baggage with that with that office and with that with that mantle. And, and so, uh, totally, totally understand that. And it is a huge responsibility and, and one that I continue to try to familiarize myself with the, with the magnitude of that responsibility. Um, you know, as far as my path to being a pastor, I grew up in a, what I would call a nominally Christian home. We attended church when we weren't working cows basically. <laughs> and, uh, most of the time we made it for Christmas and Easter. Um, and so about high school, I was kind of in a funk, probably just teenage hormones, but not really finding a place to fit in, in my high school, grew up on a ranch, didn't really identify with the ranch kids, uh, wasn't athletic enough to be a jock or anything else. And I don't know if my mom just sensed I was at a low point or what, but she had some friends who had been at the church that we were at when I was younger and they had since left that church and moved on to another one. And um, my mom called them up and said, hey, you know, would it be OK if Clay comes to youth group with with Stephen uh, uh, on Wednesday evenings? And, you know, it was kind of that that phone call. I still remember I was laying on the floor in front of the TV like I loved to do as a kid <laughs> watching something. Who knows what? Probably the Red Green show. I don't know. And uh, and I still remember that conversation and, and my mom having that conversation and. Yeah. So that was in September of 2000 or maybe in the summer of 2000, September of 2000 is when I started regularly attending youth group. And I really have 
uh, been in church at least once a week, pretty much every time, every week since then. Um, and it just set the course for my life, really. I mean, I, I, I went to when that summer I went on a mission trip to Ukraine. My youth pastor at the time felt like he should go and train youth pastors in Ukraine. We're talking nine years after the fall of communism, and he's moving to Ukraine to train youth pastors so that so that Ukraine can have youth ministry, basically. And he he did that, did that for 15 years, and now he's on to other things. So then I went on another mission trip into in Kenya to Kenya in 2001. Spent nine hours in JFK on a layover about two weeks before 9-11. So that was kind of a hair, a sobering experience to, again, be laying on the floor in front of my television as the second plane hit, um, eating my Cheerios, getting ready to go to school. And the second plane hits the towers and I'm watching on TV. It's like, yeah, uh, that was a wild one. Uh, then I went on another mission trip to Mexico, got hooked up with a school uh, in central South Dakota called Sunshine Bible Academy. And I ended up going there for my senior year of high school. And then we took a mission trip. So like my whole path into ministry is what I'm telling you has been a series of mission trips, basically. And we took a we took a mission trip to the Milwaukee Rescue Mission where I got to rub shoulders with some students of New Tribes Bible Institute. I ended up going to New Tribes Bible Institute for two years to get my biblical education. Moved back in the course of that, started dating my wife. Um, and she was going to this little Baptist church in a beautiful little town called Spearfish in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And uh, I was more interested in attending church with my wife than I was, uh, or with my girlfriend at that time, than I was attending church anywhere else. So I, I, I uh, started going there, and as a Bible school graduate, they asked me for some reason to teach the adult Sunday school class, and I ended up getting myself painted into all kinds of logical corners, <laughs> starting arguments in the in the Sunday school class that I couldn't win, and uh, it was a great learning experience as a 20-year-old boy. <laughs> so uh, after that, you know, uh, the, the church where I was saved at, the church where I became a Christian, I was walking out of the post office one day, and the pastor there uh, stopped me and said, hey, are you interested in a ministry position? Well, at that point, my wife and I thought we were going to go back to Bible school together and finish the missionary training with New Tribes Mission and go probably to Mozambique at that point was where we were looking at going to Mozambique to plant churches among uh, tribal churches or among tribes in Africa. And uh, I said, oh, I don't know, maybe. And uh, so, but he offered me a free breakfast, which at that time I was a bachelor living on my own and a free breakfast sounded awesome. So I went to breakfast with him and he pitched me the idea and I would say God kept the door open uh, long enough for us to walk through it and spent 12 years there as a youth and associate pastor. And then kind of a similar story, God kept the door open long enough for, for us to walk through it again here to come to Prairie Home Church where I'm at now. Uh, I'm sitting in my office here at Prairie Home Church. And where I sit right now, I'm 35 miles from the nearest gas station. So I'm in the middle of nowhere. And uh, the the church is just a great, vibrant, young church, a lot of young families. I always say it's like going back in time 70 years when you come to church here, because it's a bunch of young families getting together every Sunday. And they, they stand around for two hours after church is over, just talking and enjoying each other's company, because it's the first person they've talked to that they don't share a last name with in the last seven days. So they're, they're enjoying the opportunity to just connect. And so now yeah, that's kind of how I got where I'm at. I mean, that's a real high level overview. But well, when you talk about your congregation, what do you think they expect from you? Uh, probably, first of all, faithfulness to the Word of God, you know, just to um, 
rightly divide the word, as it says in, in Second Timothy, to really just allow that to be my authority, allow that to be what directs the course of my preaching. Um, you know, visit them when they're sick, uh, dedicate their children, do their weddings, do their funerals. You know, I think those are some of the things that they expect from me. Um, I, I, when I, and I was, I've been here for about five years and I remember in the interview process or, or even early on in my time as pastor here, uh, talking about trying to get out into the community and do some ranch work to maybe, uh, add some credibility to the ministry. And one of my board members had a good point. He said, no, you don't need to do any of that to be credible. Just be genuine, just be, uh, genuine and, and, uh, and, preach faithfully and the credibility will come. I was like, yeah, good point. <laughs> Tell me about the, the Bible studying that you did. You, you went with a group. I I've not heard of them, but it sounds like a pretty well-established group. How did you choose them? And, and what's the difference between what they do and what others do? Yeah. So Bible schools by and large in, in, in the, in America are pretty similar and they fill a niche of um, preparing people for seminary, or, uh, or just giving people who don't want to spend six years getting a master's degree in theology or pastoral ministry, giving them a place to go and get some more Bible education, uh, just spend two years kind of devoted to that. So New Tribes Bible Institute actually doesn't technically exist anymore. The building's still there. It's got a new name on the front. It's called Ethnos 360. That's Ethnos, which is the Greek word for for languages or people. Uh, and so, uh, that's the, that's what they're, they're doing is basically they're what they, what they have focused on in the entire time of their existence is reaching those tribes in the Amazon and Papua New Guinea and Cambodia all over the world that have had very little to no contact with the Western world or with Christianity or, or anything like that. And so, um, there, the Bible school I went to is basically the first leg of their missionary training program. It's the first two years. And what they do basically is take you through every chapter of the Old Testament and every verse of the New Testament in two years. And so I've talked to seminary graduates who said, you had more Bible education in, the, in that context than I did in the six-year seminary course I took. But really what seminary is about is giving you the tools to study the Bible for yourself in its original languages of Hebrew and Greek. And so it's kind of a different set of goals. Uh, Bible school is trying to give you that biblical foundation so that you can go on to something else. Seminary is trying to give you the tools to do the, the real nuts and bolts work of Bible study for yourself, not have to rely on, on commentaries as much or some of these other tools that we have. So, um, yeah, uh, it's really interesting the work that New Tribes or Ethnos 360 does, uh, you know, because I remember they showed us video uh, of first contact with a tribe in Cambodia that they they weren't sure there was no other record of contact with this tribe by people from the Western world that they were aware of. And actually, one of my a guy that was a year ahead of me ended up going and visiting that tribe. And he asked them, he said, all I knew about Cambodia was the Khmer Rouge. And he said, so tell me about your experience with the Khmer Rouge. And they kind of started chuckling and through the interpreters told him, well, the Khmer Rouge, we were the Khmer Rouge. Like he came out into the tribes, Paul Pot came out into the tribes and rounded up some people and gave them guns and uniforms and asked them to help him. 
in what he did there in Cambodia. And so it was kind of a, he, he said it was a little bit of a tense moment. <laughs> You've been a minister now for quite some time. Um, what has been harder for you about that than what you anticipated? So I think that um, people are wired differently. Um, and this is borne out by the, you know, Myers-Briggs or, you know, whatever personality test you want to use, DISC profile, you know, pick your pick your poison there. And I think that those are valuable. I think that those those can help us understand ourselves, help us understand other people. Well, I think pastors are no different. Pastors tend to fall into one of three categories. Uh, and this is going to sound really, uh, really highbrow, but I'll try to I'll try to not make it sound so arrogant. Um, they fall into one of three categories, prophet, priest, and king. And what I mean by that is a, a prophet is somebody who centers on the word, centers on, on declaring the word authoritatively uh, without apology. The priest is somebody who uh, is the guy you want to walk in at like the second after you get the cancer diagnosis. The priest is the guy you want to walk in. He's there to to help you through the suffering. He's there to help you through the tragedy. He's there to to dedicate or baptize the babies, depending on your convictions. He's there to uh, he's there to do the wedding. You know, he's that guy. And then the king is the organi organizational leader. He's the one who's good with spreadsheets and numbers and and people management and making sure that all the uh, you know to borrow Jim Collins's phrase, everybody on the bus is in the right seat. You know. Uh, those are those are kind of the three categories, and so I would tend to fall more into that prophetic uh, gifting or wiring. The way I the way I approach things tends to be more from a prophetic uh, bent, and so what I'm interested in is truth. I'm interested. <laughs> Sometimes I'm interested in the truth to the detriment of caring about how it makes you feel. <laughs> and so it, 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 that's hard for me to, to want to walk into that room where somebody has just gotten a cancer diagnosis or where somebody's just lost a baby or, you know, these really difficult, gritty circumstances. And I, I worked under a guy for 12 years who was the priest. He is the guy you want to walk into that room. He is the guy you want there uh after uh, the untimely death death of, of a loved one he he's just that guy he thrives in those crisis scenarios and it's always going to be uh apart from god's help it's always going to be more difficult for me to do that uh and it just comes with the territory you know uh it is it is part of the job and and so it's just something that i've tried to get better at um over time but it is it is my biggest struggle in ministry without a doubt and uh, what do you see is going on with Christianity right now? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Is, what, what are, what's your perspective? Here's an interesting tidbit. When America was founded, 1776, in, in, in England, the Revolutionary War was called the Presbyterian Revolt because it was led by the Presbyterians. They call the pastors that were doing a lot of preaching that was stoking the fires of the Revolutionary War. They called them the Black Robe Regiment because they were wearing black robes and they were preaching and people were getting fired up about uh, casting off tyranny, right? Here's the interesting tidbit, though. There are 
by some metrics, depending on who's counting, there are now more people who identify as Wiccans in America than there are people who identify as Presbyterians. So definitely the, there's a shift that's taken place uh, as far as Christianity is concerned in America. And so uh, I would be lying if I told you otherwise. <laughs> but I think that God's, God's timeline is longer than ours, right? First uh, Peter says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as, as a day. And so uh, he's got a different timeline. He's got a different perspective. Uh, Christianity in, in America might be on the, on the decline, uh, but in other places it's on the rise. I think by the year 2050, uh, it's anticipated that the majority of Christians in the world will be non-white from places like Africa, South America, and China. There's actually, I, I think, it's really hard to count, but I've, I've heard it said that there are more Christians in China than there are people in America or than there are Christians in America right now, even though it's illegal, even though you can go to jail for believing in Jesus, even though you can go to jail for naming Christ as Lord, even though you can go to jail for meeting as a church in China. Uh, there are more Christians in China than there are in America right now. And so um, now they've got three times the population of ours, so you can make of that what you will. But I think that God is God is on the move in other places. Not to say he's not on the move in America, but it just looks different right now uh, than it does in other places. So in your church, are you preaching once a week then? Uh, more like twice. I do a, I do a Sunday morning service and then a Wednesday evening service, and then I do a Wednesday youth group. Uh, so every other week I do a Wednesday service for the whole church, and then every other week I do a Wednesday service for the youth group. So about twice a week on average. Um, yeah, it gets to be more than that. Sometimes I do Sunday school, then I do a release time for the kids from the school. They come up here on Wednesdays every week. So yeah, we'll just say two, three times a week on average. And uh, is every time you post a uh, like or put forward a, a new, I don't know. I'm I'm grew up Catholic, so the Protestant system is a little different to me. But uh, like you, you don't have homilies. You have you, you preaching. Is that right? Yeah, right. Sermons. Yeah. And so the sermons is that every week you're you're writing a new one. What's Pretty your much. process like yeah. to get something good out? Ed Young uh, said. Ed Young Jr. actually said. Uh, being a pastor is like giving birth on Sunday and finding out you're pregnant again on Monday. <laughs> so it's every week. It's coming again. And so what I like to do is preach through books of the Bible. Uh, I, I, I've been going through Matthew verse by verse. So just take a chunk of verses, whatever makes sense in the in the flow of Matthew's narrative arc and deal with that and the ideas and the, the implications of that. Uh, on this week and then the next week we'll pick up right where we left off and go to the next one so basically my preaching strategy is to preach through a new testament book and when i finish that i'll go and preach through an old testament book but it's taken me uh, i think just a little over two years i think i started on august of 2021 preaching through the book of matthew and i'm just now getting to kind of the last phase of matthew's gospel matthew chapters 24 through 28 is where we'll pick up after the Christmas season. I've been doing some preaching on Isaac Watts's accidental Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, for the Christmas season. But yeah, so I like to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so that kind of sets my preaching, uh, what, I'm, what I'm preaching on. That helps me decide. Um, and then the process of getting, getting it. I'm, uh, I'm busy, got four kids. 
um, got a business. Basically, the podcast has grown into a business. Um, have a, a side hustle ranch, um, you know, and my wife and I are homeschooling our children. So I help her in the mornings get started in the homeschool and I come to the office. Uh, you know, so I got a lot going on. So my sermon prep a lot of times looks like going out and finding pastors who are also preaching through that book and listening because I'm 20, 25 miles or 20 miles of gravel from my house to the church. And so I got a 20 minute commute every day. Um, and so listening to their sermon on the text I'm about to preach, uh, reading books, uh, reading commentaries, reading the Bible, of course, of, of what I'm about to preach. That's how my preparation looks a lot of times. And so when I actually sit down to actually write out the sermon, uh, everybody's different. Um, some guys are one hour. I've heard some people say it's one hour of preparation for every minute of preaching, which means it's a 40-hour process to prepare a 40-minute present uh, sermon. I'm not that. I don't have that kind of time. That's a that's a luxury that somebody in a bigger church with a bigger staff uh, has. I don't have that kind of time. And so um, I, if you count all the listening and reading and everything, it might be five to 10 hours to prepare a 40 minute message for me. Um, and then when I actually sit down to actually write it, it takes me an hour and a half, two hours to actually write out the, the outline. I use an outline to write mine. And then is it a script when you're up there? Or are you reading it word for word or you got the, you got the kind of general consensus before you get up there? I don't think I've got an outline handy here. I'd show you what it looks like. Um, but it's, it's an outline. So it takes up two pages. Uh, the title and the sermon text are 16 point font. The actual text of the sermon is 14 point font. So when I put it on a, on a tablet, iPad, uh, I use a windows go tablet, uh, because I'm the world's oldest millennial and I haven't adopted Apple products yet. But anyways, so I use a, a Windows Go tablet with a smaller screen. So when you put it, put that document on there, a 14 point font is about right. So it's an outline, two pages long in 14 point font. And that's that's just the the growth of preaching. So when I, I think the first outline I ever preached from when I got when I got a job as a pastor was nine pages long and it lasted 26 minutes. And now I preach from two pages of notes and it lasts about 40 minutes. Yesterday I got a little wound up and I think it was closer to 50 some minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> And who gives you feedback on your sermons? The best. So it's hard to get feedback on sermons. Uh, most of the people are just going to pinch your cheek and say, You're, you did such a good job today. You know, um, so the best feedback I've ever gotten on a sermon probably uh, came from a group of other preachers. And I just and and actually we were there preaching to be critiqued, right? So that that's really helpful feedback. And other people give great feedback. I've got a one of my elders is a, a really really solid guy. He does most of the preaching when I'm not here. And even yesterday he was asking me some technical questions about the sermon to make sure that uh, everything you know was on the up and up and and my interpretations weren't going astray, you know. And so. Um, those are that's solid, but it's it. Most people are just. <laughs> if I'm going to be really blunt, most people are just glad they're not the one up there doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've heard it said before. People, and I don't have this at all, so it's just something I imagine. But when they say um, the people's two largest fears are fear of public speaking and fear of dying, 
you know, and people are, are, would rather be in the casket than speaking in front of it, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Heard that. And so how do you, um, how, how does the church or your elders or whatever decide if you're being successful? Do you, are you aiming to get more butts in the seats? Are you, you know, like more dollars in the coffers? How does this get rated? Um, those definitely are metrics that get used in churches for sure. But I have never felt that pressure, honestly, in any of the, my ministry experiences, I've never felt that pressure. Um, you know, I, I would count myself blessed because of that. Um, because I've, I've definitely been in conversations with guys that did feel that pressure. And so, um, no, I, I, again, I think it goes back to, especially in, in, um, Bible churches, um, non-denominational Bible churches. Are you faithful to the word of God? Did you show up when I was sick or in the hospital or facing surgery or, you know, go on and on and on? Did, did you show up? Were you there? And were you faithful to the word of God in your preaching? Um, you know, and I think it goes, it, it comes back to just basic people management skills and, and, you know, are you, are you, decent to be around and do you do you dot the i's and cross the t's and take care of the details and and look out for those things or if you're not good at those things do you delegate them you know i think a lot of times people get themselves painted into corners by trying to do things they're not good at rather than just recognizing hey this isn't my deal i'm not good at this i'll delegate that to somebody else and so um you know i think probably uh the i i would get fired faster if I uh, invented or drummed up some ancient heresy from the past in the church, I'd get fired faster for doing that than if the church shrunk to 10 people. So um, I, I think. Now, what maybe I might have to supplement my income. I might have to figure out a way to, to make ends meet and take less of a salary from the church. Um, if, if there were fewer people in the, in the seats, but, um, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure lack of faithfulness to the word of God would be the biggest thing that would get me fired. And then second to that would be, um, he, he wasn't good as a shepherd. He wasn't good as somebody who showed up when X, Y, and Z tragedy struck my family. And so I think those two things would probably be the biggest, um, biggest, determiners of my success as judged by those in charge of making that decision. Now, uh, the reality in my, in my position is that every year, uh, we have an annual meeting where the congregation casts a vote says, do you have confidence in pastor clay and his ministry or do you not? And that, I don't know how binding that vote is, but it definitely is a, uh, instruction to the elders at the church as to whether or not I'm continuing to be fit for ministry here. So that's kind of the reality. My performance review just happens with the members who show up to the meeting, whereas somebody else's annual performance review is with the supervisor. That's kind of how mine works. <laughs> Do you worry about the vote? Or are you pretty confident each year that it's you're in a good spot? Yeah, I think that um, I, I, uh, I don't know that anybody doesn't worry about an annual performance review, right? Uh, on some level, like, oh, there could be the catastrophe that happens. But um, I, I know 
that I, there's more I could have done every year. There's more I could have done. I could have, I could have shown up more often for people. Again, back to that prophet, priest, and king uh, taxonomy. I think there's there's more that I could have done uh, in those scenarios. And so uh, there's always that sense of analysis and regret and thinking, let's do better next year. Um, but um, yeah, I think that there's just a. It's, I mean, it's I. I love coming to church every Sunday. I'm I'm here with some of my closest friends in the world, um, and it's a pretty special place. Like I said, it's like going back in time about 70 years, and so um, I I enjoy it a lot. And I if if they would still have me after I got fired from being pastor here, I'd still attend if they'd still have me. <laughs> so Clay, maybe the final question. Um is uh, you both raise sheep, and as a pastor, you you mentioned shepherd, you know, like this can Tell me, like, from seeing it on the ground on, on both levels, both as in the religious context and in the livestock context, why does that analogy make sense for pastors? Yeah, I think it's a caring thing, right? So those uh, animals need the eye of the shepherd, Right, they need the shepherd to to look after them and to help them see things coming that they might not be able to see themselves. And I, I think that's just human human nature and and animal nature is that we can't we're blind to our own uh, faults and unhealthy habits. You know, we don't see them as clearly as other people do. You know, and so it's easier to spot the speck in your brother's eye than it is the log in your own. Right, that's Jesus <laughs> said that. Uh, and so I think it, it, we just, we need that care. And so livestock will get themselves into trouble, especially sheep, right? They're vulnerable to predators. They need, they need the shepherd there to protect them from predators. I think that, uh, somebody who's spent the time just steeping like a bag of tea steeping in the word of God can spot error and false teaching and help people avoid it. And so that's part of it, uh, checking up on them um, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially, all of those things go into it, like just holistic. That's all, all of those things going into what it means to be a human, right? We're just trying to, to help them be as healthy as they possibly can in all facets of what it means to be a human. And the, and the shepherd role as far as livestock is no different, right? We're trying to make sure that they've got everything they need to be healthy, that they're, uh, that they're provided with all of the uh, immunizations or whatever it takes for them to survive. And so I think that it's a really fitting, really fitting analogy. And it's an analogy that God used not only in the Old Testament, but the New Testament with Jesus calling himself the good shepherd. And uh, Peter picking up that language and saying, we are under shepherds working under the chief shepherd who is Jesus. And so, uh, and it, it came out of pastoral context, the, uh, and pastoral meaning like in the pasture, that's the, the uh, environment that the Bible sprung from, right? I mean, Abraham, the father of three faiths, was a shepherd, right? Him and Lot, they had a conflict because their goat herds got too big. Right. So they had to separate ways. And that's how a lot ended up in Sodom. You know, the whole story. Right. So, I mean, it's it's sprung from that context. And still today you go to Israel and you will see people herding sheep in the countryside. 
the shepherds came to the birth of Jesus, right? We're in the Christmas season, at least at the time of this recording. Uh, the shepherds came to the birth of Jesus it's because they lived out there uh, in the in that context. So it that's the that's the uh, environment from which the Bible sprang. But it's also a really helpful illustration for what what pastors do, and that's where the word pastor comes from is from that shepherd uh, shepherding idea. Well, Clay, if uh, people wanted to uh, learn more about you, catch the Working Cows podcast, where would you send them? Ranchingpodcast.com will get you to the entire back catalog of every episode. Go through there, find the things that sound interesting to you, download an episode or two, and if you like what you hear, come back for more. Well, Clay Connery, it has been awesome to have you on. Thank you so much for uh, making the time and, and, uh, and sitting down and chatting with me. Vance, thank you for the opportunity. It was an honor. Ah, ah, ah.